Hi, CityCast listeners. Today, we are talking about Montrose, one of Houston's favorite neighborhoods to hang out in, its gay neighborhood, and also one of its fastest gentrifying places. We are joined by Brian Riedel. He is the Associate Director of the Center for the Study of Women, Gender, and Sexuality at Rice University, and he's done research on Montrose's history. He also likes to hang out there. It is Wednesday, November 30th, 2022. I'm Lisa Gray, and this is CityCast Houston. Brian, thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. Oh, so if somebody who doesn't know Montrose wants to get to know it, wants to understand what makes that neighborhood special, what would you suggest that they do? Where should they go if they've got like an afternoon to give themselves a crash course? Yeah, it's a great question. The first thing that I would Mm -hmm. say is get out of your car. Park (laughs) your car in some convenient parking lot, like say the Manil, Mm -hmm. and maybe start there near Alabama and enjoy the Manil. Free art for the masses, right? Which has a lot to say about what Montrose is and who helped make Montrose Montrose. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you could wander next door to the campus of the University of St. Thomas and look at the administration building there on the corner of Alabama and Montrose. It was one of the oldest buildings in Montrose, uh, made by the person who really made that development, uh, J.W. Link. It's where he lived, mm-hmm. and it was the advertising and calling card for people who thought that Montrose might be for them. And it's one of those old Victorian mansions, right? Uh Uh-huh. It's drop-dead gorgeous. And it was one of the most expensive houses in Houston when it was built. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And still here today. Yeah. So that's a really good starting place. Mm -hmm. But then you might get back in your car because this is Houston. (laughs) And um Go up Montrose, take a quick jog over on Westheimer and go up Wall, and then hang out for the afternoon at Rudyard's. Oh, the bar. Yeah. Uh So those places give you a pretty good grip. And along the way, you'll see a lot of things have changed. There's a lot of empty lots where a grocery store got raised, a long time strip mall got raised, and new things are going to go up there. Skyscrapers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So... That gives you a little bit of history and then a lot of hanging out and drinking. That's I like that. So let's back up a little bit. Sure. Where is Montrose? It's roughly, I think of it as southern boundary being like 69 and northern boundary being Buffalo Bayou. Yeah, something like that. Think like Midtown is on the east side, mm-hmm. and you know some people like to say Shepherd is the furthest west you want to go. Yeah. So it's a pretty big area uh, today, culturally. But when it was started, it was a much smaller place. Mm-hmm. And that one addition to the city has kind of become the place name for this much larger place. It's about seven times larger now culturally than it was legally when it was formed. When it was first just a suburban luxury development. Yeah. It used to be on the edge of Houston when it was built in 1911. And today it is a central neighborhood where people come from all over the greater Houston area to work and play. and, And not too many of us live there anymore, turns out, no matter who we are. 
Oh, that's interesting because I see more high rises going up. Mm -hmm. So how did it go from being a luxury development to being known as Houston's gay neighborhood? That is a question that I've obsessed over oh, for the last 15 years. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, so when I moved to Houston in 1997, mm -hmm. almost everyone that I met said, you know, Montrose just isn't what it used to be. Yeah. But for me, moving to Houston for the first time, it had like four different papers coming out every week made by the gay community for free. And I could pick them up in two different bookstores. And there were tons of bars and almost every restaurant that I went to, my waiters were gay or lesbian. There was a beautiful lesbian coffee shop down on Alabama called Two Peas. I mean, oh yeah, this place had everything, I thought. But the people who'd lived here before me were saying it had gone downhill. So I got curious about what was the height? Where did it become what it was? Yeah. And it turns out that a lot of what helped that happen was uh, other neighborhoods displacing Montrose as the place where the wealthiest of wealthy Houstonians would go. Mm -hmm. uh, you might think River Oaks in this place, right? Yeah. But also World War II changed everything and the economics of Houston were quite different. A lot of people who used to live in Montrose then were absentee landlords renting to people who came here to work during the war or after. Mm -hmm. And there was disinvestment in the 40s and 50s in Montrose so that it was cheap. Oh. And beatniks were able to afford places to live here. But a lot of other things changed too. You may not know that Montrose was deed restricted by race. Oh, no. So up until 1948, when federal laws changed and uh, a court case uh, also changed all of that, from the 40s to the 60s, who could live and rent in Montrose changed. And in the white supremacist South, that meant that many people did not want to live there because Mexicans, Blacks, long hairs, hippies, mm -hmm. they could all move in. Um, and that's really what helped it to become a neighborhood because there was space available. Oh, so, so Montrose changed before the rest mm -hmm. of Houston. Mm -hmm. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So part of what then happened was uh, the gay places, lesbian places, that had been elsewhere started to drift into Montrose over the 60s and 70s and got concentrated there by the 80s. There was the, the largest yeah. number of gay institutions, LGBTQ institutions by like 83. And then I right. think you know HIV did a number on that. Yeah, I got to Houston right around 1984. Okay. And, you know, it was the place where all the artists were. It was the place mm -hmm. where students could live. As right. well as being, you know, full of so many gay places. Mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's the short version of that story. So that's how it got to be there. Mm -hmm. And what's your relationship to it? You've lived there? Yeah, I did. Uh, I couldn't afford to live there <laughs> when I first was a graduate student here in Houston in 97. Oh, because you got there later than I did. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I got here in 97 yeah. from North Carolina. And I'd never seen uh, a gayborhood and lived near a gayborhood like this before in my life. So for me, it was just huge. Yeah. 
And so even though I was living next to Rice, I would go to Montrose all the time. Uh-huh. That's where I did my grocery shopping at the Disco yeah. Burger. That's where I went out to the bars. That's uh-huh. where all the cool coffee shops were. That's yeah. where I would go for like 24-hour restaurants where I could study or pretend to study late at night, <laughs> right? Because I was too busy watching the people. Right. It was a crazy scene. Uh, so then fast forward, I finished grad school and I ended up uh, renting a house with my then partner in uh, what we called the family side of Montrose, west of Montrose Boulevard, not east of Montrose uh, Boulevard. Okay. Yeah, yeah, on Willard. Okay. Uh, and that was that was a really interesting time. We could still walk to the Pride Parade. Uh-huh. Right? And for all that it is a walkable neighborhood, surprisingly, we didn't do that much walking in the neighborhood. We had jobs that took us elsewhere by car, right? Uh-huh. So, yeah, we would drive down to the grocery store <laughs> and then drive back up or stop at the grocery store on the way home, continue driving on the way back to the house, that kind of thing. Yeah. But you liked knowing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Just having that like fantasy of, oh, yeah, we, we could walk somewhere for dinner. And we would sometimes do that, but yeah. not all the time. Yeah. But I loved it. I loved living in Montrose. I loved the, the feeling of who I would see on the street in my neighborhood because I would run into yeah. people that I knew from other places and other things because we, we would all be hanging out there in some way. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't live in Montrose now. Mm-mm. Nope, nope, nope. Why uh, not? I'm outside the loop. Well, you know. Oh, my uh, God. Me too. Yeah. Um, I, I ended up marrying, and so I, I moved in with my husband uh, outside the loop of the house that he owned before. It turns out yeah. lots of things make us choose where we live, not just the affordability of a place. Yeah. I also think that there's been this much larger pattern. It used to be that almost all the gay people I knew lived in Montrose, and that's mm very much not true anymore in my yeah. experience. That is absolutely not true. And yeah. uh, I think our sense that it was at some point true mm-hmm. might also have been a kind of mm, perspective on what yeah. actually was true, right? Okay. So uh, one of the things that's been really interesting is doing oral histories with people uh-huh. who've lived in Houston for a long time. And, uh, of the like 150 some odd that uh, students have helped me collect over the years, very few of those people actually live in Montrose, but they spend all their time there. Oh. So, you know, Garden Oaks has a lot of people. Meyerland has a lot of people. And this is like from the 90s forward, right? So maybe at one point, you know, the distribution was different. Uh, Right. But we don't really have good data on that, right? The census never asked people, are you lesbian? Are you gay? Are you bisexual? (laughs) Right? So we don't have like for the 80s or the 70s, that kind of data. We have to squirrel it around some other way. But our networks really are the tell. So the truth is my network was a lot in Montrose. Your Uh network was a lot in Montrose, but not everybody's. Montrose feels to both of us much less gay now. And also to me, it seems just so much wealthier than it was when I could afford to live there. Yeah. How has that happened? Why did it gentrify? Uh, there's a lot of things. It's close yeah. to town, right? Mm-hmm. So location, location, location. Yeah. All the real estate folks will tell you that it will always stay in demand, partially for the housing stock, partially for its location. But what also is happening 
there, right, is mm-hmm. as those values of that property continue to rise, it class stratifies the space from the beginning beyond the development that happens above and beyond that, right? Yeah. So, you know, the, what's happening now on the corner of Westheimer and Montrose with the new developments going up there, both mm-hmm. where the new library is going to go and yeah. the place that has yet to be constructed, right? That is made possible by the fact that those rising property values over time. But to think about that in a long duration, right? Who has been able to afford that over time? When Montrose was first platted, deed restricted. Mm-hmm. So all of that property was basically in white hands. Uh-huh. Then as the property gains in value and gets passed on to people, sold on to new families, new owners, it replicates that pattern, even if other people than just Caucasian-identified folks are able to buy. Yeah. So it, it's kind of entrenched a pattern right. that has endured to this day. If you look at the Kinder Institute data for the neighborhood, mm-hmm. we talk about Montrose as if it's one of the most diverse neighborhoods, but it is by far majority white owner-occupied. By oh. far today, over 80%. Yeah. Are the people who rent much different? I know younger people who live there. I know, you know, people who are much less wealthy. Yeah. So the renting market is kind of like the housing market, okay, but at a more affordable level, right? Mm-hmm. So for people who are choosing to rent, are they going to afford rent in Montrose or are they going to afford rent further out where it might be cheaper? So even there, the renting market is expensive, right? Yeah. So for, for me and my then boyfriend, right, mm-hmm. uh, we were renting a house for like 1200 a month. Yeah. We could afford that. Yeah. Right? But not everybody could afford to rent that right. house. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at. So, And now the idea of getting a house for that seems fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. And that was only like 10 years ago. Right. So, you know, the gentrification part, uh, at one point there was this story that it was kind of like a a gay spurred thing, right? Ray Mm -hmm. Hill, bless his soul, loved to tell stories of like, you know, uh, young queer property fixer uppers painting things, refurbishing things, and that was what changed everything. Well, it it wasn't just queer folk doing it, right? Lots of people continued to be improving and holding property. So we can't call that simply a, a queer gentrification front. Yeah. Yeah. But Montrose, even though it is gentrified, it still feels like the hip place to be. It's still the gay place to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even though the Pride Parade has moved downtown, this yeah. annual symbol, right, that reminded right. people of Montrose's cultural and historical importance, even though that's different, Lots of organizations with deep roots in gay community, queer community, are still there, right? So the churches mm-hmm. are still there. Bearing Memorial is still there. Kindred has taken over the space that used to be the Lutheran Church, a very gay-friendly uh-huh. church, right? In the nonprofit world, also uh, Legacy Community Health Services has that huge complex on California. The Montrose Center is still in Montrose, right? <laughs> right. So, you know, uh, there there's a lot of reasons that queer communities are still tethered to the space. And bars are still there, too. But yeah. not all the bars, right? Pearl, right. that's not in Montrose, right? So. Yeah. 
we've we've been encouraged to think of it still as home, us queer folks, by how many pieces of our community are still there. Right. But it's true that not all of them are still there. Right? So we, right. we think of home maybe as a larger space than just Montrose. It's historically gay. Mm-hmm. In this funny way. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen in the future? Where do you see it going? Uh, gentrification will continue. Mm-hmm. Hopefully mass transit will keep pace with that density forming. Uh, I know a lot of people do not like rail on Richmond, for example, but it's going to become unavoidable if that piece of town is still going to be livable for the number of people that are now, it's being built to house, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's that's a thing. Uh, the buses are good. The buses are actually much better than I think people give them credit for mm-hmm. compared to many other cities, but uh, a more robust urban transit needs to be part of that plan. And a lot of people are working toward that. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of really good urban planners who've put their thinking to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's one piece. Another piece is that it's still going to be a cultural hub, and for more than just queer Houstonians, right? The art yeah. scene, the music scene is still very powerful there. One day there will not be an Anderson Fair. One day, oh. right? <laughs> but for now, I mean, there's so many yeah. galleries that are there. Mm-hmm. There are so many spaces where small bands can meet people and play. Um, so there's that part of Montrose isn't going away anytime soon. I see that as enduring. The coffee shops, the thrift stores, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the general yeah. vibe. That the general this is where vibe. Things are interesting. Yeah, and, and that's what's drawing people to the space, right? Mm-hmm. So that that tension is going to be something to watch in the future. How will those things that we love about Montrose be able to afford to remain as the prices in the neighborhood keep ratcheting up? Will a thrift store be able to endure if it isn't supported by, say, a friend's organization or a church? Many of them are supported by churches, in fact. So there's a lot of infrastructure making that variety of experiences possible. Um, So that's a thing to watch for and care for. Yeah that we keep the things that we love. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Brian, this has been so great. Thank you a lot for talking with me. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. That was Brian Riedel of Rice University. Now, I am here with producer A.K. Al-Mumen. A.K., what's going on in Houston News today? Hey, Lisa. It looks like the Astros are adding another big bat to the team. Even though we're just coming off of this amazing World Series win, the team is making some changes by adding Jose Abria in as the new first baseman. Abria is coming to Houston after spending nine seasons with the White Sox. While there, Abria was ranked third on the White Sox career leaderboard for his 243 home runs. Now, you may be wondering what this means for this year's first baseman, Yuli Gurriel. Well, it's being reported that he could possibly be back, but would be taking a pay cut and receiving a reduced role on the squad. Either way, it sounds like the Astros are lining things up to make another run for the World Series next year. That's it for today. If you liked this show, do us a favor. Tell three of the people who you hang out with in Montrose to listen to it too. We will be back tomorrow. Talk with you then.
Thank you for letting me catch that. Uh, Helena would be upset if I were called the director. <laughs> Whoops, I, sh- I really ought to know better than that. If it's, if it's on my script, I just read it. All right, let me try that sucker again.